Hello and welcome to another CMG Business Podcast with me, Tony Cantwell. Recently, I had the pleasure to meet Dr. Rory Hearn. Many of you would have heard some of his comments and views and read some of his articles on the state of the Irish housing market. He had some very interesting comments, some real insights, and obviously a guy very passionate about the subject. And uh, I totally, totally enjoyed having a chat with him recently. Hope you enjoy it as well. Did you deliberately set out to say, I'm actually going to do a book on the housing crisis and how to solve? Did, you, did it evolve to that or was that the agenda that you... No, did, when I started um, to write, in terms of writing the book, no, I, I, was, I suppose it goes back to 2015, 2016 mm. at that point. Um, you know, when I saw the rising homelessness in particular at that yeah. point, homelessness was increasing. Um, and people might remember that it was the centenary, of course, of the proclamation 1916 rising. And there was actually a young woman who was on or did a documentary called My Homeless Family. Yeah. And they covered a woman called Erica Fleming, who herself and her daughter were in a hotel that was emergency accommodation. And I remember being very struck by it and her testimony and her story and the impact she spoke about on her child. And she actually organized um a kind of uh, a protest herself around the event saying, look, you know, we're 100 years since the foundation of the Republic. And yet here, you know, we've here myself we and others here we are, you know, in this this new wave of family homelessness that, you know, the country hadn't seen for, you know, probably since the foundation of the state in terms of families and children um, being evicted and homeless. And at that point in time, I was doing research around homelessness and housing and I was analysing the Rebuilding Ireland plan, which was the government's housing plan, was also launched that year in 2016 um, by, it was the then Minister for Housing, Simon Coveney. And around that point, so I did a lot of work on analysing that as a policy um, document. And I suppose I saw some fundamental flaws within it at that point in time, which was in particular the way in which social housing, there's a number of components to the plan, you know, the social housing sector, the rental sector, private rental sector, then the private housing delivery, the market. Um, And in the social housing delivery, um, I was analysing, analysed the figures in it. And I suppose it was something that I was aware of, but it really struck me that it was the final figure, I think, was 85%. So about 85% of all the social housing that was planned at that point, 2016, until today, mm, yeah. 2021, for the length of the plan, was to come from the private market. This is the famous 20% allocation. The 20% allocation in part five, but also a number of other new ways. So the actual the rental sector was the biggest way they were going to get social housing, which was through the housing assistance payment, which is where... Um, previously, uh, people who were, the rents that had increased, they, they were f- have a difficulty paying rents, could apply for things like the rent allowance um, and would get support from social welfare. But the big change that happened within the Rebuilding Ireland plan was they now were calling this social housing. So when people were getting a long-term support in the private rental sector, they put them on the housing assistance payment scheme and that became designated as social housing delivery. Yeah. And I found that hugely problem, problematic um, uh, in terms of the reclassification that, of course, this isn't new social housing being built. Mm. Um, 
but also there was a significant proportion of housing, social housing was being, they saw it being bought from the private market itself. And also what has become increasingly, uh, has got tension recently is leasing, leasing uh, over like 25 years. And the, I suppose at that time I was pointing out that this isn't actually new social housing delivery and that it adds to the housing crisis yeah. because you're not adding a new supply of housing in a sense you're just pushing stuff around. Right? You're pushing stuff around. In many ways, you make it worse because the, the particularly problematic is the rental scheme. Because if you rely for social housing on the private rental system, rents, which were increasing at that point in time, um, you constantly have to chase that, those rising rents if you're going to keep people in their yeah. housing. So in a way, it was a win-win for landlords. Um, and in some ways... Um, you know, and, and it was and it was it's economically illogical, economically not value for money because the state is pumping in. Now we're at a point where we're spending a billion a year, one billion, one third of the entire housing budget goes on either the housing assistance payment, rental subsidy to landlords or leasing. Um, it was terribly skewed. Yeah, it's so, but you're not, you get no asset out of it. The state no. gets no return in terms of a, a, a council house or a social housing or affordable housing. Simply, this money has been churned, has been paid out every year, a third of the children's hospital, what we're spending on the children's hospital. So, anyway, I was analyzing all that and seeing yeah. that there was something fr- wrong. And then, as we went into 2017, 2018, the housing crisis continued. Um, and my research had, you know, it looked internationally, I'd been researching housing for almost, you know, 15 years at that point, now 20 years. And, you know, I was well aware that from my research and policy and that, you know, there was countries like Austria where they don't have these housing crises um, and this extent of housing need and understood that, you know, we should be doing it differently. And so I went about I wanted to write a book about this. And and obviously at that point as well, you had the emergence of the real estate investment trust coming in, investor funds and what NAMA was doing. And I was seeing, you know, could see that that was highly problematic um, and others as well that I was working with, people like Mick Byrne and UCD who were analysing it as well. And we were seeing that, no, this is very dangerous because we're handing essentially our land and land over to these investors who are only going to build expensive housing. So that's where I went about trying to write the book saying there were solutions here to the crisis. I could see the growing problem and... um, But yeah, I didn't realise it was going to have the impact (laughs) that it's had. And what did you... Did you have... Any idea? Did you have a view that you'd like to get it maybe as a talking point or maybe start a conversation or push it out there? And I suppose the idea behind. Yeah, I suppose the idea behind the book is, uh, you know, as an academic, as a as a, you know, a a lecturer, researcher and educator, it was primarily, I suppose, uh, I wanted to educate and inform people. That's what it was about. And I was trying to educate both. As a as a you know as a as a, a reference book for students who would be studying this, but also then I wanted to write it in a way that the general public would be able to understand yes. it without having to have an academic background. Because it's quite a, it's quite a bold um, title name. It's, yeah, I looked at that when I said, "Wow, that's that's confidence." Because how to solve it? You know, when you're looking at the the, the crisis. Yeah, I suppose the two things were that were bold in the title was one the the point was that the extent of the housing crisis, that yeah. this was was our calling a housing shock. This wasn't just some, and I made the point, temporary blip, you know, and, and that this is something more fundamental that was going on um, in terms of like the emergence of generation rent, people been excluded. Um, and of course, 
this is coming from my research as well, looking internationally, you know, what was yes. happening in the UK, what was happening in Canada, for example, um, research that was been done and work that I was linking in with around the UN United Nations Rapporteur on the Right to Housing, who'd done reports on kind of how housing was changing internationally, this, you know, financialization of housing. Um, and the so the idea of the housing shock was that uh, that I could see, you know, this collapse in home ownership levels, the emergence of generation rent, that this wasn't something just temporary. This was something really deep and profound that was going on with our housing system. So that was the point of the shock bit. It wasn't yes. just a, another crisis. Um, and then the how to solve it. Yeah, I suppose you. <laughs> I wanted to really go after that and say, look, you know, we can solve this because yeah. I think something that has been very, um, I suppose, you know, noticeable and disappointing in the health sector, for example, is it's talked all the time, you know, health is this unsolvable mess that, you yeah. know, no minister wants to take on. Yeah. And whereas I do not don't want housing to get to that point where yeah. people just see it as someone solvable when it is very solvable. But I think also you appear to be driven from primarily a societal point of view in any case. I mean, the, this is we're looking at the consequence of various governments and various policies and elements like that. But obviously the drive, a, a big part of that drive for you is this societal issue, the society and the impact the housing has on people. Yeah, absolutely. Um I suppose in terms of where I've, you know, always come from in my in my adult career since, you know, I was uh, studying, you know, and then went out to work and, you know, I've worked, I've worked and all my work has been when I worked as a community, you know, engagement worker in Dolphins Barn or in social housing. And from the mid 2000s onwards, it's I suppose I come from a social justice perspective. Yes. That's my viewpoint in that. Um, I think that our structures of society, the way we organize our society and our economy should be about, you know, achieving equality. It should be about ensuring, you know, people have the best opportunities, have the best possibilities. And it should be driven by the idea that the state plays a key role in ensuring things like health, housing, education, income standards, that they're available to people and that... I suppose that's where I come from. And this idea then, if you look at housing, I've you know studied in the, this idea that housing is a, for example, you know, you look at Maslow's hierarchy of um, needs and, you know, the most basic level of human need is um, shelter. Um, there's other aspects of Maslow's hierarchy which are very interesting as well. Things like the idea of belonging, security. Mm. Without secure affordable quality housing you can't meet those basic requirements of what it is to be a human being um and similarly around health for example and we've seen it with covid um you know housing having secure affordable housing is fundamental to our health you know and to our society and absolutely i come at this from a society perspective which probably puts me you know it's different than quite a few commentators around exactly. housing who are coming at this from the, who come at it from a property perspective or a commercial perspective or a housing market. I come at it from a society angle and how is our housing system working for our society and how, how should it and how could it do that? So I would look and I would think how frustrating, and I'm going to assume there's a level of frustration with this, how frustrating is it then when you enter into this world of the marketplace, the the uh, commercial side of this, the uh, government society issues, but, you know, the real marketplace, the housing sector as it stands in its raw state, if you look at it in terms of 
It's always been a certain money-making thing. There's always been an abdication to some degree of social housing, which I kind of have an issue with the term social housing, but that's another day's work. But, you know, that's involved in there as well. Was that a frustration to kind of come at it from the society perspective, but then look at this and think, Jesus, like, nobody gets this, or do they get this? Yeah, it has been very, very frustrating <laughs> for for quite a while to be banging your head against a wall or feeling like, you know, that nobody gets this or sees this, that, you know, obviously there's, there's a lot of people who I work with and, you know, have, have you know, researched with and campaigned with who, who see it housing from that societal perspective. But absolutely, when you enter in most of the debates around housing, it's, you know, it is that property market perspective, real estate perspective, and it is very frustrating because it yeah. is a very different viewpoint and analysis of housing. Um, and I think that the problem has been that too much of the debate has been from that perspective and, and taken within that lens because, you know, it is hugely frustrating and, and, and I you know, frustrating to the point of upsetting in that, you know, and I've spoken about this and, and more recently that, you know, the, the housing crisis has caused huge social damage, like, you know, yeah. huge destruction of people's lives um, well, you know, I've, I've seen you I've seen articles written by you Rory that have talked about anxiety shame uh, mental health issues as a result of this issue of housing yeah and, and they wouldn't be automatically associated with it you know no. that the people wouldn't think about housing and mental health for example no and yet, you know, I'm, you know, there's there's numerous, you know, groups within house the housing system and people who, you know, I've talked to and, you know, researched around and have come to me who talk about the mental health impact. For example, you know, there's, uh, I think the figure I was looking at there is probably about 350,000 young adults who live at home with their adult parents in mm. Ireland. And, you know, they talk about how, for example, the sense of delayed independence, you know, been stuck in a box room at home, not feeling being able to become an adult um, sense of shame, stigma around that um, leading to, you know, the mental health impacts. Also, you know, we've talked, you know, just contacted by someone yesterday telling me that they had um, they were renting. They are renting with their with their partner and they. Uh, had a, have been saving for seven years, they said, for a deposit. And now the health issue has come up. They have to pay out for that. They said their deposit's gone. Um, and they said that, you know, looking, being in the private rental sector, which isn't secure in Ireland, they're like, how can we have a child? Yeah. How can we have a family? And I've been contacted by people who've, who've lost, as they say themselves, the window to have a child because they haven't been in a secure form of housing, mm. haven't been able to afford to get a home where they feel they could bring a child into. And I just think, I think about, there must be people out there like who just must be so upset and are so upset and angry. <laughs> I'm not surprised, you know, that and must be just, you're going, what has, how is, what has our housing system done to people? Yeah. Yeah, I think you mentioned that the basics of health, education and housing are probably the three most challenging government departments, it would appear. Uh, there never seems to be a resolution to some of the issues. They just seem to trundle on in a different decade as such. Do you see any aspect with the housing where things are changing within the marketplace as it stands? So I think that... 
there's definitely um, a number of areas that have developed this year um, with the new Minister for Housing that are positive and could be seen as potential ways in which we could see big change, particularly, for example, the development of the cost rental housing, mm. which is this is housing that is rental, so it's available to rent, but it's it, it should be anyway. Now, there are issues around this. It should be lifetime leases. This is essentially what they do in Vienna and Austria, how they provide it. Um, but it's available. It's different from what we would understand as traditional social housing in that it's available essentially for middle-income earners. Yeah. Um, and the idea being that this is... So people... The idea being that you don't have to... If you want to rent or... Um, you're in unaffordable rental currently or, you know, in the private market that you and you don't qualify for current social housing, that you would be able to get rental housing that would be secure and affordable. Yes. Provided by the state or housing associations, for example, are seen as playing a key role in delivering this. Um, And that's a really good model. It's a really important, I think, way for the future in Ireland to solve the housing crisis. So I think that's a very welcome development. Um. So I think, but the the problem is that it's not planned on the scale that's needed, that at the moment we have a number of pilot projects being developed, but it's nothing on the scale of what's required. What's needed. What's no. needed. There was 34 million allocated in the budget. Um, if we look at, you know, they're talking maybe 400 units delivered maybe in the next two years. We should be looking at, I think, three to 4,000 of those per year is what the state should be aiming to deliver cost rental homes. If you are really trying to build up a base for people who aren't in a position to buy, who m- might never be in a position to yeah. buy, but need secure rental housing, don't qualify for traditional social housing. Um, so that's, I think, a sign of hope. But <laughs> as I said, there's no, there's not, the scale is not there. No. Um, because I, there is there is a, a huge increase over the last few years or with people wanting to rent. I mean, it's not necessarily in terms of um, mass home ownership. I mean, there seems to be that because it's it, it we're leaning, I think, into a more European mentality with property that from a rental point of view, it's OK. There, I think some statistics came out last year show showed that we had the highest level of uh, property rental that wanted to to rent but it's that security that they're missing isn't it it's security and affordability and affordability yeah, yeah they're they're the two that are missing and i think that there is clearly a lot more people who want to rent than did previously um and obviously we it's important to say you know social housing is also a form of rental housing that's yes. there that that people rent and but of course the difference between our social housing rental and our private market rental is the social housing rental. Your rent is related to your income. So it's very affordable yes. for those tenants in it. Um, and it's also lifetime secure, essentially, yes. unless you engage in anti-serious, anti-social behavior and that you're not going to get evicted because, I don't know, the councils don't sell their their no. properties. So, But in the private rental sector, we don't have that. And I think that's a fundamental problem with our policy currently, mm. that the private rental sector, and there's no reason why it shouldn't be, but I think that the government um, and policy seems to be worried that if they go too far down the road of giving tenants securities and affordability like they do have in, main, in mainland Europe, that they'll deter investors or they'll deter landlords. And I think that that has to be really knocked on the head in the sense that There are people who want to invest in delivering private rental housing and they will deliver it 
on a very affordable, secure basis if that's the housing policy regime that's in place. Yes. So I think we should just say, look, this is the type of rental system we want to create. And therefore, you will find investment that will come in that wants to, like, who invests in other European countries. There are longer term investors who are looking for a lower rate of return than quite the speculative investors that we have been attractive yeah. attracting so far. I think uh, I read something yesterday which said that um, the cost of funds in the Irish market for these um, international funds is particularly higher than it is in some of the European countries. And as a result, it reduces margins and all of this sort of stuff. Um, is that something you'd accept? And in the sense that the cost of them, as in the cost for them to access finance? Yes. Yeah. It is, it is definitely an issue that uh, the... Uh, it's difficult to assess exactly. I think that there is a certain expectation that um, of a higher return for investors coming into Ireland because there is an issue of risk around the state of our property market. And I think that there's a demand from, in, from finance, global finance, that if you're investing in Ireland, number one, they're expecting a higher rate of return because Ireland has been advertised internationally as being a place where you get a very high rate of return on investing in the rental market. But also there's an understanding that we are coming out of a property crash and there are issues in our property system that make it yes. risky to invest in. And those two would add to the cost of finance and, and the cost of, you know, that expectation of return and the, that risk. And therefore, that's problematic because you're absolutely right. Then if, you're fin if your finance is more expensive then, of course, your end product, your end housing has to be more expensive. Mm. And it's similar with land as well. We have a major problem that land is a major factor in the cost of, of housing and apartment delivery. Um, and the expectation of a high uh, rate of return on land and land being owned and sold. Um, and that comes back to what we don't have here is taxes that reduce that speculative profit element within the housing system. Yes. So in countries like the Netherlands, for example, they would not allow and do not allow the level of vacancy, vacant derelict property, vacant land. That is all heavily, very heavily taxed. Um, and that level of profit um, on turnover of land, on sale of land is not allowed similarly. So we have problems within that that we don't address that allow additional costs onto our housing system that, of you, course, people have to pay for. The, the area of vacant property, and I think it's just started to materialise now in government circles in terms of retrofitting property to make it suitable and to try and bring a lot more properties back to the market. Is that a quicker way to bring more viable properties out to the marketplace, do you think? Well, I think that there are a lot of ways in which you can bring housing. Definitely... Vacancy, addressing vacancy and dereliction is a key way because we know from the census in 2016, now it is 2016, you know, there was in the region of 180 to 200,000, mm. you know, vacant housing units. A certain amount of those were holiday homes as well, mm. so not necessarily vacant as such. In, in But if we look at now, um, that kind of people, you know, a certain amount of people moving out of the city and going down to, to what are called, you know, tourist areas, that those issue of fam of holiday homes and additional holiday homes and that question of vacant property is important. 
But even that census didn't capture what are called derelict properties, yes. which is often what we see most of around our cities and towns. Is you know, literally, you'll yeah. see buildings with roofs falling in. Oh, yeah. You, you wonder s- how. Uh, sitting there for as long as you're living, you can remember that was yeah, always sitting always. there, <laughs> sitting there. And this is at the heart of our cities and towns. So um, I think you're right that derelict properties is somewhere that could be very quickly. You could bring in, um, you could bring property, bring housing on stream. And importantly, of course, for sustainability wise, for climate. Um, and as you mentioned, retrofit, this is a really important area. But again, it comes back to the government and local authorities appear to have been and have been absolutely unwilling to tackle this, that they haven't gone out and issued, like we've seen, for example, the vacant site tax, very, you know, in some local authorities, not even, you know, doing the the vacant sites register, which comes back to a point I wanted to make about housing and the way our infrastructure, our state infrastructure, our local authorities um, our Department of Housing. Housing has not been prioritised as a, you know, we talked about health education. It hasn't give, been given the same priority in policy over the last 30 years. And therefore, we don't have these resources. We don't have capacity built up in our local authorities to go out and do these assessments. Our, you know, our, our housing associations are still building up capacity. And so when we talk about the need for investment in housing, we don't just need an increase in investment in, you know, the funding that will enable a, a builder to come on public land to build. We need funding to go in, I would argue, on a permanent, create permanent jobs in the public sector, in local authorities, in the housing, Department of Housing, supporting housing associations to do the, all this work. Yeah, the skills. The skills yeah. that, that they can do this. Um, because until you do that, you're really just... You know, you're you're trying to, you know, the private sector is going to run rings around you, yeah. you know, there, yeah. as we can see, and you have no capacity to do all these other parts of what are needed to create a sustainable, you know, affordable housing system. Do you think the public sector have the capacity to expand into a major role? I mean, I know you're saying in terms they need these skills, but sometimes... There seems to be battles within a lot of public sectors sometimes to try and make get things to move, get things to happen in some of these areas. Is this? Yeah, I think that some of it's embedded. You yeah, know. There, there's no doubt that there are problems within the public sector and and you know issues of bureaucracy and. But then we can see parts of the public sector that that work very well, hugely progressive. You know, yeah. you can see. You know, for example, I think of our, our Lewis line, you know, our, and our dart train, you know, our yeah. darts that work amazingly, um, you know, massive delivery. It, it's a state company. Um, you think of the health service in the sense of what it has done in responding to COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, how it does, you know, our maternity services, our public health systems, yeah. you know, delivered by public staff um, operated. And so... There are clearly, you know, there are examples, lots of examples, and, and I've, you know, spoken about this at the conference before um, last year around, you know, local authorities who are building social housing, doing it very well, you know, yeah. good examples. Um, you know, there was in the region of nowhere near the figures that are claimed, but around 2,000 social housing units built last year. Right. That was still 2,000 units that were built, you know, commissioned by, designed by, delivered by local authorities. So we can do it. But I think part of the problem, again, comes back to is this is government willing to, you know, 
funded properly. And you do need processes in place whereby local authorities have a problem in that they have this constant churn of people between different roles. I think within local authorities, there should be dedicated housing units set up yeah. where people aren't moving off to do road ta- taxes in six months' time or exactly. to, I don't know, do something else, which is... Build uh, the department, get the skills in, yes, work on that. Exactly. And yeah. that's and I think local authorities should be given that resource and told, set up dedicated housing units that um, combine, you know, that you have planning, you have, you know, engineering, you have QS, you have, you know, as you said, assessment, property assessment, land valuation, you know, tradespeople, you know, all those skills should be built up within the local authorities. And, and, and you know, that idea of, because as I said, you have this constant staff churn, and then you also, you attract people in because you've, you know, permanent secure roles, you have ability to develop careers, um, and I think housing associations should be supported and encouraged to do the same, which they do. Obviously, they're dedicated, yeah. focused on housing. And that's why you can see some cases, housing associations doing excellent jobs in terms this of... This is it. When they've got that skill base or department or focus, you will see some results. Um, but the old expression in business, which is um, shit trickles down, um, is there a viable national strategy or plan it doesn't ever appear like there is and so therefore it it tends to fragment in so many different ways and there's no joined up thinking on it and it's you're doing that little bit and I'm doing this little bit and we're not connected and somebody else is doing something else it's it isn't there a big element of this there needs to be that leadership that says here's what we're going to do yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, the other the other phrase is, you know, the fish rots from the head down. Yes. You know, which is... And That's I think, far nicer than mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think yours is starker and more necessary. And um, there's a lot of expletives I would feel like using as well. Um, but, you know, there's... You're absolutely right. It's it's a um, and to describe it, it's a shit show. Yeah. That's what it is. Yes. And you need someone to take it and go, we're doing this Um and rather, and it's the one thing I feel about the minister that he seems to be still caught in that. Um, oh, I have to, you know, follow these interests, and I have to, you know, be careful of those, and I have to watch these people. Often listening too much to the big uh, global investment funds, and not actually going, hang on a minute, mm. you know, if we put our system together, we have all the parts. You know, you've we've land sitting there. We have, you know, we have, we can access finance now. The ESRI is saying, you know, the state can borrow to build. You know, we want a to develop a, you know, a permanent um, delivery of housing. And something that was very interesting that was said to me um, back when I was doing research, and we mentioned this before we started on the book I did and in, in, wrote a book on public-private partnerships back in 2011. Research I did for my PhD was because I, I was looking at public-private partnerships and critically analysing them as a way in which the public sector was being, the local authorities were being downgraded, essentially, that their role was being handed over to these uh, private operators of, for example, water, wastewater, and housing as well, social housing. And I remember interviewing one local authority uh, manager. Uh, he was based down the south of the country. And he was saying to me, the good thing about the PPPs is the public-private partnerships is that at least in those, the state makes a contract with the private sector to deliver them over 25 years. And no matter what happens, no matter what crisis happens, and this was, you know, 2000, and I think it probably could have been 2008 when I was interviewing, 2009, no matter what happens, you know, whether, you know, there's cuts or whatever, and this is someone, of course, who would have seen the 1980s cuts, yeah. um, that that money is going to still go into the public uh, private company because there's a contract set up where they can't cut it. 
Whereas if we do it the traditional way, we can just be, the funding can be turned off. Oh, yeah. And I think that there's a reluctance and we've, we've built this into our local authorities that, and they say this, you know, we don't want to take on risk of developments. They don't want to take on the responsibility or delivering projects because in their head they're going, well, in five years time, government says, oh, or in three years time, we're now cutting back on our spending. Yeah. And they're left holding the can. Yeah. And so there's something I think fundamentally wrong in our approach to housing where we still see that as something that's possible. And that's where I think that the new housing plan should be a 50 year plan rather than a five-year plan Almost or a ten-year plan. Yes, well, uh, you know, absolutely. And, you know, I'm a very strong advocate of that as well, that there needs to be a constitutional change to put the right to housing in the Constitution. Um, to make that state obligation, uh, obligation on the state, a responsibility that no matter what government is in place, that there's a requirement to ensure a housing system is functional and providing yeah. people with an affordable, secure home and... We only have to look at the disaster of the last 30 years to see that something major is needed to to change. We seem to have the hangover from the Celtic Tiger and where the home was treated as an asset. Mm. And I don't see it being quite the same way now, but are we still suffering some of those consequences? Yeah, we are. Absolutely. No, you're right. Um, It is what happened during the Celtic Tiger, when you think back, And, you know, everyone was being encouraged to become a homeowner if you had any sort of, you know, income or at all. The banks were throwing money at people. But what also happened at that time was people who had a home and who had a bit of money were encouraged to buy a second one or a third one, this buy to let. Um, And a lot of because people ask, how is there so much pressure on house prices? And of course, at that point in time, and it's very interesting parallel with what's going on right now. Um, because people were saying, how are house prices increasing? Um, of course, credit was flowing in. The banks were giving 110% mortgages. But yet there was something else going on that was adding this pressure because we were building 60,000, 70,000 yes. houses per Couldn't year. Keep Couldn't keep up. Per year. And of course, you all, it's because you also had, um, I think in the region of, I can't remember exact figures, but maybe I think it reached at a high point, 10 billion worth of mortgage lending going to yeah. buy to lets. So, of course, that adds a massive pressure. And I think there's a direct parallel with investment funds right now buying up property, adding to price inflation as well. Um, and it, in that those years, those 15 years kind of from the early 90s, I think, and particularly from kind of 1997, 98 to 2008, we did absolutely turn housing into an, an investment yeah. asset in people's heads as much as anything else. Yes. And I think that's where the real problem started. Um but I think that people have been burned so badly by what happened, um, you know, and people, of course, who were also encouraged to go buy a second home in Bulgaria or oh, whatever, yeah. you know, <laughs> if you had any money at all, the banks would throw it at you in this ludicrous situation. Yeah. Um, and we've seen that bust. And I think there is a value shift going on right now. And I think it's quite fundamental. And I think government has not realized it yet. Um, I think the public are changing quite quickly, um, in part because people who, you know, supposedly benefit from rising properties, which are parents in their 50s and 60s sitting at home would look and staring at the Johnny, Mickey and, and Roisin um, in the, the box room yeah. going, uh, hang on a minute, this doesn't really work for me. We need to get these out of here. We need to get these out of here. I don't care actually if my... And actually going, I actually don't care if property prices fall a bit. I actually, they need housing. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty fundamental change in how we've thought about housing for the last 20 yeah. years. Do you think from a government perspective... 
In my experience, um, we tend to always be on the pendulum. We go, we're so far one way and we're going crazy and we're 110% mortgages. And then we go the other way and we have the central bank who say, we're going to put a lid on some of this, which I understand the motivation behind. But it tends to come with huge conservatism from the government's point of view. We're going to be a bit more cautious how we approach this and what we do. Everything is microscopically looked at and then ultimately very little gets done. Yeah, I think there's an element of, of truth to that, absolutely, that excuse me, that yet we swing the pendulum from one way to another, that there is so much. And you can even look at, for example, the uh, bureaucracy that goes between local authorities and the Department of Housing around, you know, the plans being delivery plans by local authorities having to be go through, you know, numerous hoops, which were more appropriate to times of austerity when they were trying to cut back funding and, and yeah. doing that. Whereas not now when we need local authorities to spend and build, You're, you have these really bureaucratic delays in place. Um, and similarly, I think around the, 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 the central bank rules, I think, are, are different in that they are, qu- for me, quite fundamental in keeping property in housing affordable. Yes. The problem, because if you if you increase those lending rules and you allow more credit go in and people can access more lending, all that is going to do in a situation of constrained supply is add to house prices further. Mm. That you really have to solve the supply issue first. And then if there's a situation whereby people need access to more credit and you have lots of supply, well, then, OK, I think in that point, um, I think you could, uh, you know, expand credit in terms of people being able to buy affordable homes that yes. are guaranteed affordable and not, um, you know, prices that are in the region of 400, 500,000, oh, yeah. um, which aren't affordable at all for anybody. Um obviously a very small amount of people, but for most people, <laughs> they're certainly not affordable. Um, but I think that the issue is almost that there is a, a conservatism in built now and it, that conservatism is also with this fear of disturbing the market. And, and I think, you know, it's, we need to have this conversation as well. Like, you know, if you allow housing be predominantly provided by the market mm. and viewed as this market good, which real estate investors do and investment funds and, you know, landlords and, you know, people as well who own their property in that sense and view it, that that leads to a problem which we're in and yeah. it will leave you in a permanent crisis. I think you have to take, there's always going to be a market in housing, but I think what we need to do is look at somewhere like Vienna, which they have essentially half their housing is not in the market. So it's either this affordable rental, which is a public housing, which yeah. is available to anybody, um, or they've cooperative housing. And I think that's where we need to head to, that yes, you will have you know a certain amount of, you know, private profit driven housing sector built at high end and high value and but for most housing it is essentially operating in you know a very controlled market situation and a situation whereby the state is playing a real central role not not necessarily the state itself but you have for example cooperatives and you have community-led housing you have the housing associations are delivering, you know, 60-70% of housing. I don't see why, particularly for the next decade, that's what we need to rebalance our housing system. And that's quite a radical, you know, statement to make. And there's lots of people who have a lot of property interest in the the market who will be going, no, 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 we don't want that, you know. I know. But you see, I can't, uh, I, I see the investment funds come in and we see some of the commentary around that. Um, but I can't imagine a lot of the local politicians. Ireland still is somewhat unique in terms of access to your politician. And I can't see them willingly 
taking the abuse, if you like, from their local constituents about, I can't get on the housing ladder. So there's got to be a lot of political frustration within, whether it's backbenchers or whatever. There's got to be huge internal political frustration because even with yourself now in the last six, nine months, you would have lit a fire under this topic and it's gained a huge amount of momentum. But a lot of people get that as well locally. So mm. there's there's an element where they're trying to struggle, but it seems like they're somewhat handcuffed. Yeah, it's an interesting point because I do think that is, you know, there is something lovely about Ireland in that sense that we are so local and, yeah. you know, people, you know, your politician is still local and they will be getting it and they are getting it. And, you know, if you read, you know, for example, the Dublin Bay South by-election, you read the paper, it's clear, you know, the reporters that are going around with the candidates, they are getting it. Yeah. You know, housing is the issue. Um and they know they're going to get it in the election as well. And we know that people are contacting them. Um, you know, thousands of people, 35,000 people signed the petition that I set up within a matter of a couple of weeks around the investor funds and the right to housing. You know, people are contacting them. So I think they are feeling that. Um, and I suppose what I feel is the more they feel that, the better, the, the more likely to change. And, you know, I, I we do live in a democracy. And, yes. you know, I think that if the public view on this is changing, which it is, I think, then government has to change accordingly. And, yeah. and that is my hope, that government will go, OK, well, we, you know, we're going to have to say to the different interests, the you know, who've been dominating policy for quite a while that, no, we're taking a different track now. And yeah. um, my hope is that that's what's going to happen. And um, and that we see um, politicians listening to people. And, and government listening to I people. I think it, they will see it on the doorstep. I think they're very aware they're going to see it on the doorstep. Um, there may be a kind of a belated reaction to this, but without getting into political preferences, do you see any political party that's better than the next political party <laughs> in terms of delivering housing? Oh, it's a difficult one. I'm very uh, not going to be dragged into party politics. No. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the way... The way I would put it is that I have set out very clearly in my book the policies that should be pursued. Yes. Um, and it's quite, they're quite different from what the current government is putting in place. Yes. And what the current parties are espousing. They would be more closer to the parties, you know, um, in terms of Sinn Féin is advocating them, the Social Democrats are advocating, the Labour Party are advocating them. The policies like, you know, a substantial increase in social housing building, in affordable building by the state, putting in place proper protections for renters, the right to housing in the Constitution. But, you know, as you're right, that, you know, Fianna Fáil uh, backbenchers are now saying, you know, they're putting forward motions around the right to housing in the Constitution. You know, they, they, for example, the government now are saying, the two parties are saying, you know, we're supporting, you know, are we're looking at a vacant site or not a, a vacant property tax. Um, but so I think that the the opposition cl are pr promoting the policies that I have set out yes. predominantly um, and government is still not making the significant shift. I think the coming budget is going to be a very, very important moment, yeah, an opportunity. Yeah. Um, because we have the ESRI, which has said you can borrow an additional four to seven billion. The state can do that to build for housing. And they describe it as a financially prudent thing. And they also describe it that if we don't do it, we're talking about a decade further of a housing crisis. Yeah. So I think um, the government's real test will be that budget. Do they increase the capital social housing, uh, housing affordable, social affordable housing building? to, you know, currently it's probably in the region of a billion. 
I would think they should be increasing it to 3 billion, yeah. that that would be a signal that, yeah, we're serious about this. Yeah. And you also feel NAMA should play more of a role in this because in terms of what they've, that you reckon they could build up to 70,000? Yeah, so NAMA is very important still. And, and in a lot of the media commentary, a lot most of the media commentary around this, um, NAMA has been essentially portrayed that it's, it's done, it's wound up, it's done its yeah. job. That's probably what most people think about it. A lot of people don't understand NAMA. It's complex. Um, but NAMA still has, its, you know, and I've looked at its, its website very, very recently and its annual reports um, for the, the great research that I do, <laughs> reading NAMA's annual NAMA's reports, report, yeah. <laughs> um, which always enrage me um, and have done. I've been highlighting NAMA as a potential uh, solution to the housing crisis since 2014, what it was potentially could have done but hasn't, um, but it still has land. It has about 750 hectares of land, development zone, development land. Um, it has about 10,000 units in that it's in uh, currently in construction. It has about seven to 8,000 in planning permission um, and another seven to 8,000 in pre-planning. So you're talking in the region of 30,000 units. Yeah. That's a lot of units. It is. That's a lot. That's a year's supply of housing. I was going to say, yeah. Um, and the current plan is that those units will be sold off to the highest bidder. So that's the current way NAMA works. Mm. It sells. It also has property. We don't know how much, but we were aware recently that it sold property to an investment fund. So it has like apartment individual units all around the country. It still has significant land. I think NAMA, I don't see why, given that we now completely own NAMA and it's... Um, We've pay, it's paid off all the debt that uh, we don't direct it to sell at affordable rates. They yeah. could still return a profit, but you could be talking affordable rates two hundred, you know, two hundred and fifty thousand. And similarly to build its units as well. Why isn't it fast track fast tracking those units? We know that uh, Nam has reported this. That this has sold units for four hundred, five hundred thousand. Yeah, and this is a state body, so. It again seems to me it's that idea of what you were talking about earlier, that lack of joined up thinking, yeah. the lack of willingness to take a risk. And of course, what would be thrown back is that, oh, well, that would be a breach of state aid rules because you that would be interfering in the market. And, uh, the you know, you might have private developers taking the Irish government to the EU court. And I would say, bring it on if I was the Irish government, because <laughs> I can't see the EU ruling against a government that's trying to intervene in the worst housing crisis in Europe. Yeah. That EU would turn around and say, oh, no, you can't actually do that because you're interfering in the market. The government would clearly say, the market is broken. Um, we have a, an obligation for our citizens to deliver housing. And to me, NAM is quite symbolic of that conservatism, that unwillingness to take a risk to disturb certain interests. And is that, I wonder, where you've mentioned in the past that courage and creativity are needed? Would that be a perfect example? It absolutely would be, yeah. I think both courage and creativity absolutely in relation to NAMA. You know, if you look at it... that And say, just because we've always done it this way, there's no reason why we must continue. We can stop now, reset, address the issues and go that way. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's... Again, something, a problem with politics, but also a problem with the state. It's probably a problem across private industry, maybe a bit less so, but the the idea that, you know, you follow a certain path. Mm. And when you've so long down that path, 
to then turn around and go, actually, that wasn't, that really hasn't worked out that so didn't well. Work out. We need to change yeah. direction. Yeah. Um, that requires maturity. Yes. It requires bravery. It requires, you know, I was wrong. We were wrong. And, you know, I think that, or you could phrase it differently and you say, well, the policies that worked or might have worked up to two or three years ago are no longer working and we need to change direction. But I think the ship really needs to change direction. And, the government needs to have the bravery to say that the ship has been heading in the wrong way and it's been pulling us through uh, iceberg after iceberg. Yeah. And, you know, we need to go very different. The problem is, I think sometimes politicians can tend to just say what, you know, they feel needs to be said at the moment and deflect and so forth. It obviously needs to be seen in real ways and... Uh, I can't tell you the amount of times I have been wrong in business, um, huge amount of times. But when I got it right, and I'd stop, we'd, we'd mm. all be marching, and it's my job to lead the business and say, this is definitely the way to go. Rory, follow me absolutely 100%. And maybe three steps down, say, you know what, back it up. Yeah. It's not. We need to go slightly over this way. Yeah. And don't just because that's what I said. If things change and circumstances change, you, you change with the times. Yeah. You change with the circumstance. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the politicians and again, the government say can get stuck in that in that, you know, rut. And as you say, handcuffed, you know, you know we call it captured to a certain extent. Or, but that unwillingness to admit, OK, we did we did get it wrong. We need to change direction. And. It, it it requires maturity and it also yeah. requires maturity of a media as well to say, OK, why are you saying that? And not and an opposition to not just hammer them then and go, oh, you've said you're wrong and blah, blah, blah. And you go, well, OK, that's great. Now you're admitting that this was a, a wrong path. We need to change direction. Let's do that and let's do that together. And let's, you know, and I think it's interesting from your perspective as a business, because I have also been struck by the absence of business, you know, and private businesses yeah. in the housing debate and housing discussion. And it seems to be the only ones that have been listened to are, are the very high-end Googles or whatever who want their high-tech, high-end, you know, rental. And yeah. once they're being sorted, which, you know, a certain amount the REITs are delivering uh, for that end, mm. then it seems to be okay. But for small businesses in Ireland and, and even medium-sized businesses where their workers are most surely be hammering for higher wages and, and be unable to even, you know, take up jobs. And I know that, but, you know, people are talking about emigrating again. People yeah. are going to lose their talent, lose the the, the buildup of, um, you know, talent that we've built up. I don't understand why, maybe you could answer, why are <laughs> businesses not more engaging in the, the housing discussion and going, uh, just get on with a government and build? I think it's going to be very interesting, Rory, over the next 18 months, two years, with the element of working from home mm. and the decentralization of the big cities and more access to affordable properties just outside. And that might, do you think that will have any significant impact on housing? Well, it's an interesting one. Um, it, it's, it's difficult to tell yet because we don't know how much the patterns are going to become, you know, an actual... Um, like how much th that's really going to become the future of businesses, you know, yeah. a, a wide scale um, working from home 
Um, and whether we move to two or three days in the offices, we know as well that there's lots of work that, that doesn't, can't be done. But it, you could say already it appears that, you know, the rise in the disparate, the increased rise in house prices in regional around the country over the last year could be a, a very clear indication of that. Um, but, the you know, so that is clear an indication. Some people are yeah. clearly moving, but the problem is, Housing is not more becoming more affordable. No, because it's gone up more than it's gone up. You know, I was looking at the figures this morning. Seventeen percent in leash. Yeah. Um, and you know that's not sustainable either. And of course, the problem is that there's not a there hasn't been a huge supply in those towns. Yes. Um. So therefore, if people are moving back, there's not a big supply. There's a massive again problem of vacancy and dereliction. So that might help things. And again, you could look at innovative schemes like, you know giving real supports to people like setting up a, you know a state building company for example that would be set up to go around and, and work with people to if they you know and, and CPO you know compulsory purchase tax a derelict property you know work with a, a family or you know somebody who has a bit of money to put into it and do it up and then you know the state works together with them and you get the property done and yeah. you know those sort of things that would be really you know you can, can see you it. imagine what they could get done with a state building company or uh, enterprise. Yeah. And it's all focusing in on, and it's not just Dublin or Cork, it's countrywide. Countrywide. Looking at everything, dealing with the local authorities, the public sector, Mm. as well as national. Can you imagine that? I I made this, I did make the point in my book, and not everybody, you know, necessarily agree with me, but that we should set up a state building company and I describe we should it should be like the ESB the way the ESB rolled out electricity yeah. that you set out with the ambition um, and I, and I kind of really to push the vision bit out a bit my vision uh, it was and is for you know you would have a, a state building company that would be, have this broad remit that would support building communities because the whole and building sustainable housing because they're the kind of key challenges we have ahead of us is, you know, how do we build sustainably? How do we build climate resilient? How do we build communities? Mm. So it's not just about throwing up housing. And, and that's, you know, my big, you know, concern about the build to rent sector is a lot of it is small Units, they're not community orientated. They're not about uh, necessarily building sustainably. Obviously, we have the standards in place. But, you know, imagine, you know, a state company that had also this remit of community cooperative building as well. Yeah. That was, you know, going down to a community in, in um, you know, wherever you are. in I don't know, uh, region of Limerick or Carrick and Shore and Waterford saying, right, who needs a home down here? Let's come together and let's see. Let's work with you yeah. and see. what. Let's identify the derelict property around. Let's identify the land. Like, you could actually, in the way that we saw during COVID, you know, that communities coming together. We could do this as a real community building exercise as well and and it just seems like but and that's where people's energy would be as that's well that's it i mean i think you know you look at it wherever you focus your energy you're going to see results absolutely and yeah. it, if the energy is focused on this sector because there's also great opportunities i think between the public and the private mm. and mm. because they can work together on certain things and there's something in there for everybody and all that sort of stuff mm. but Ultimately, if you focus on these things, you will get shit done. Abs- so absolutely. That's that's ultimately what it comes down to. And it comes back to that whole thing of the viable vision or strategy. Um, I've got two questions for you, Rory, because I'm conscious time-wise. I don't want to hold you up all day on this. Planning. The whole planning process. Is there issues there? Because, I mean, I remember looking at uh, flying somewhere when we could fly. 
And my daughter asked me, why is there a housing issue? Look at all that land. Mm. And that's a very simplistic thing. But even outside of Dublin, and as you go a little bit further out, we're, we're still very attached to a lot of the ring roads and stuff are accessible. But the planning... I spoke to a guy a while back and I said, planning reminds me of the dual carriageway coming off Slorgan dual carriageway into Donnybrook Village. It all comes from two or three lanes, clogs up in the one, takes forever to get through. And then, you know, you try and soldier on. Yeah. And of course, we could have a much wider uh, discussion about because you go, what's the purpose of planning? And a lot of people focus it, narrow it down to planning is about giving planning permission. Mm. But planning isn't about giving planning permission. Planning is about design. Yeah. It's about thinking. It's about looking at a really wide lens. And of course, if you look at that Stalorgan dual carriageway into the city, you go, actually, the fundamental problem is the lack of public transport. It's not three lanes into one lane. Um, and how our, our, how our city, again, was designed and how it has been designed to allow massive dereliction in the city centre so people are forced out to live in the suburbs and the cost of housing as well and that whole commuting. Um, so I think the planning discussion, because I really, I, I'm very wary of the anti-planner, anti, you know, this idea that, you know, planners should be just, you know, the powers need to be taken away from planners and given mm. to, a, as we have done. Um, that planning is a really important job. Mm. And in terms of particularly when you look at sustainability, you look again, when I talk about community building, you look at planning, uh, or, you know, how does our, our cities, our towns, how do they work, you know, regional planning, all that is vital. And development, you know, your daughter was right to say, look at all that land. Absolutely. There is a massive um, land banks. There's massive land hoarding, even within our cities and yeah. towns. Um and that comes back to the point I made earlier about, for example, the vacant site tax, you know, not being enforced. Um, and there is, we know that, I don't have the figures to hand, but there are tens of thousands of planning permissions in place that are not being built upon. Yes. They're not being used. So some people have recommended it should be use it or lose it, you know, planning uh, to planning regulation, because we know what, what, um, investor developers who have land they get planning permission on it and then they basically sit on that planning permission watching how house prices go and then they might sell it yeah. basically at a much higher rate because the, the rezoning and all that that there is a need for planning to facilitate development absolutely and it should be about development but it should be about sustainable development it should be about community housing and i think again it comes back to if you look at countries and this is where the land development agency you know has some potential if it's if it operates in a direction which is about um providing affordable actually affordable land and and not Again, there's issues around it currently being linked to the market and market rates, but that um, affordable land is is purchased by the state, and because land is a key resource. And the question I would ask is, should why do we allow land to be used as a speculative asset mm. when it is the fundamental ingredient of sustainable towns, sustainable cities, our housing system? And I think, you know, it goes back to since 1974, there was the famous Kenny report, which was um, 
you know, recommended the, you know, laws to be put in place and amending the constitution that land could be bought basically by the state, CPO'd by the mm. state and at a very low cost, essentially. And if we look at successful cities like Amsterdam, places like that, the state essentially owns most of the land and or as buys it up or and then it, it basically sells it on to developers on the basis that they're going to deliver at a yeah. actually affordable rate. And to me, that's what we should be doing. And we actually have a massive land bank now. So well, that's a typical example of a good public-private arrangement mm. in that regard. Um, let me ask you, we're, we're going to come towards the end of this, and we're going to throw this one at you, all right? Um, one of the, if the political parties in power were to appoint you as the new Minister for Housing and said, here's the keys, Rory, do what you need to do within the parameters of the department or whatever. Um, what would be the first steps? What would be the first two, three, four things you would do in that role? So the first two or three things. First of all, I'd only take it on condition that... <laughs> Terms and conditions. <laughs> Terms and conditions <laughs> that... Uh, the ESRI recommendation, we were borrowing the four to seven billion that the ESRI recommended. Right. So I would use that funding um, to, as I said earlier, triple. So I would increase the capital spend budget immediately uh, from one billion to three billion. Yeah. So and then I would set up um, a team who would be to set about delivering that. So working with bringing local authorities, housing associations, cooperatives in uh, together and say, right, how are we going to deliver this? And you have absolutely zero uh, obstruction. And any obstruction you have, you come to me and I will sort it out. Um, that's That would be my starting point. And I think that would be the fundamental one where you would actually yeah. go out and, and deliver. Um, and I would say we have a target of 20,000 homes per year to be reaching within three years. And that's our target. Um, and all the associated things that I talked about, about communities and resourcing and all that to go, go, go along with it and looking at setting up a state building company with that. Um, so setting up a state building company alongside that. There would be the first two things. Third one I would be to direct NAMA to um, fast track its housing delivery and for all the units to be sold at an affordable rate. Um, and fourthly, I would put in... I'll take five, right? Fourthly, I would put in <laughs> place um, a... A, I would reintroduce the moratorium on evictions in the private rental sector. I think that immediate measures would be needed to make the private rental sector a home, to take pressure off people feeling they have to buy is the only way is to get a home. Um, and I would um, also put in rent affordability measures. And fifthly, I would put in place, hold a referendum to have the right to housing in the constitution. Fantastic. And what about a time frame? Would you have a time frame that you'd put that in? That you would expect to see some results and then maybe I think gather. you could see within results within a year if you took wow. that. Okay. You could. If you took that approach, you absolutely could. If you if you saw if you look at the Okulon, for example, uh housing uh, alliance cooperative led by Hugh Brennan, I've spoken to them. They're the ones who are who, they're the only uh, builders of affordable housing in the country over the last 10 years, they build them in North Dublin and they're now building some more with Fingal County Council. Um, I have spoken to him quite a lot about this because he's made the point that he said, if you uh, allocated half a billion, that's 500 million, to um, cooperatives like his and house associations, he said he could turn that into 10,000 homes being delivered within two years 
um, through basically they would then go access finance based on that. They would start delivering 100, 200, 300 homes and recycle that money back in. Um, And the public land as well gave them the public land. They could do that. So the expertise is here. The vision is here. It's literally um, it's not being harnessed. And I think that the will you could I think right now with housing, you could move mountains in this country with the public desire for action and the public desire for and not just public, but business, you know, society that you could really have a real radical approach that would, you know, really transform and involve people in changing our housing system very quickly. And I think a lot of people would take like even landlords you know, I, people have to take, you know, you know, it's just gone too far. You know, the whole profiting yeah. from housing has just gone too far. And I think people are willing to say, OK, you know, we need to do something different. And but I think, Rory, the tolerance is, is is got a lot less now for, I mean, sometimes, as you say, there's no, some people, unfortunately, have no option. But I think, generally speaking, the tolerance for not being able to afford to buy a house or to rent a house or a property I think the, it's wearing thin now, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that um, people who are affected by this, particularly, you know, what we call generation rent, yeah. uh, people stuck at home, living with their parents, unable to afford to buy a home, people unable to rent a secure home. Mm. They, they're, you know, they went, went through COVID. I think a lot of people thought as soon as COVID was finished that surely rent prices would have fallen, uh, house prices would have fallen, people saved, thought they could buy you know, that's a year and a half. You know, the housing crisis was the main issue for people in their 40s and under in the last election. I think that we've reached absolutely a tipping point. That was very clear when that uh, estate was bought up in Maynooth. And, you know, the reaction I've got to what I've been trying to highlight over the last few months has been just been like nothing I've seen before. Yeah. In terms, people are really angry. They're upset. They're hurt. Um, and I think that their tolerance has reached boiling, breaking point. Yeah. And, you know, that, that is probably going to continue to build. I can't see that going anywhere. My worry is that people will emigrate. That's my biggest mm. worry, that we're going to lose another generation of our talent, yeah, our young people. It. You know, we can't afford it, no. Yeah. And, and that is the big, I think... But, you know, I think you've tapped into something that um, has struck a nerve with so many people. And um, it's seen in the the amount of contact that you're getting, um, the airtime that you're getting, and uh, the, the kind of general agreement, people going, no, that, this guy's right, we need to be doing something about this. It will obviously somehow transfer itself to the doorstep when it comes to elections. And I think there's nothing to scare politicians more than that. So, Yeah, and that's my hope, yeah, that we, we do see this continue. The public does not, you know, give up on this. Yeah. That and, and I think I really feel that the public and all of us, everybody involved in this, you know, the housing sector, uh, people who are in housing associations, you know, working in the sector who know the solutions are there, people in yeah. local authorities who, who agree with this, people in businesses, you know, people who are in the, the building sector who see what's needed. You know, everybody needs to add their voice and say... But I think there's a lot of people in that. Sorry, Rory. But I think there's a lot of people in there who... Good people trying to work within the parameters they have. Absolutely. And I think there needs to be more talk by them as well about how those parameters are limiting what they could be doing. Yes. And the more we would see that of those people speaking, and I know that's difficult, but that's what we need because 
you know, government will say and is saying, oh, we're doing this and we're doing that. And, you know, it's we're tipping along and, you know, we're really, you know, we're going at this now. And then, you know, you talk to people inside those housing associations and, you know, local authorities and small builders. And they'll say, you know, it's still the same. You know, we're no facing change. this barrier and that barrier. And it's all pushing us to do this and pushing us that. There's no free reign given to just go build affordable housing. Yeah. Um, and so I think, yeah, we need to have those conversations and, and, and the honest ones. And we need to, I think, importantly as well, keep talking about the impact of this crisis in a human way, you know, and 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 that's, you know, it's great to have this opportunity as well to, to yeah. talk about it. And, and well, I'm delighted that we, we had a chat on it today. You're going to talk at the conference in September, the Public and Private Sector Housing Conference. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And I'll be talking about a lot of what we touched on here in yeah. terms of the need for um policy change the need for a real re, you know reevaluation of how we treat housing how we understand it how we prioritize it within our society the key solutions that are there that are are there within yeah. our housing sector at the moment but aren't been unleashed by government the vision in cooperatives and housing associations and local authorities um the huge land bank we have the opportunity that we have now um, to really transform our housing system to make it one that's affordable and, and the public energy that's there and demanding it. Absolutely. And, you know, when you think about it, as we wrap up, um, the even the employment, the reskilling of people delivering all of this, you know, it's it's got so it touches so many aspects right across the board. It does. Absolutely. And yeah. And, and just to finish, I suppose that is a key thing that there's a lot of talk about labor shortages and, you know, where are you going to get people to do all this? And I make the simple point that if you provide secure, quality, well-played employment in this sector, people will stay, people will come to it, people will come from abroad. If we set up an ambition to say we're going to build sustainable housing, affordable housing into the future and there's going to be no government that's going to change that, people will come and do it and they'll work for it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great positive note to leave on. (laughs) Dr. Rory O'Hearn, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me.